this is Memorial Day weekend, as so many of us have mentioned this morning, and we do want to take time just to honor and to remember the American soldiers who paid the ultimate price for our freedom as a nation. And all gave some, and some gave all. And we continue to gather freely in worship today because of those who have served to maintain our right to do so. And so we honor those who gave that ultimate sacrifice. We've also come to view this holiday weekend as Decoration Day. And I know many of you will be decorating graves this weekend and telling stories of loved ones who have passed on and have made it to heaven ahead of us. It's scriptural to tell those stories, and it's a way of passing on the faith. Psalm chapter 78 says that God commanded them to teach their children so the next generation would know the stories. And then that chapter, Psalm uh, 78, goes on to recount then the faithfulness of God to Israel and the way that they left uh, Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and they went through the desert. And it tells that whole story. And so I encourage you this weekend then to tell the stories and to be blessed as you do of your own faithful uh, legacy and family history. And finally, today, we also tell this story that 50 days after Jesus had risen from the dead and 10 days after he ascended to heaven, the disciples were gathered in an upper room praying and studying scripture when suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house and the fires of Pentecost were lit as all of them began speaking in other tongues. And the power of the Holy Spirit is still falling on God's people today on Pentecost Sunday, 2023. So may we continue to be a Pentecostal people who stir up the flames and tell this story and model this experience and live a spirit-filled life in front of the next generation. Well, this morning we are headed to Matthew chapter 19. That's going to be our text today, but... Honestly, it's where we're going to kind of hang out for the next four weeks as we walk through this sermon series. But last week, it was important to start in Acts chapter 8 with the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, I promise that not every sermon uh, in this series is about eunuchs, but you're going to think I'm lying to you today, so just take my word for it. They're not all uh, so prominently featured. Okay, but my apologies also if that's making for awkward uh, lunch conversations. So... Uh, today we're also talking about discipleship and discipleship is another weird concept I mean what does discipleship really mean to be a disciple is basically to be a follower and maybe we should say a devoted follower of someone or something discipleship is the condition of being a disciple but it feels like that's breaking a grammar rule to use the word in the definition of the word right like that's not what you're supposed to do and so it kind of has that feeling like I'm not entirely sure that that made any sense to define it that way I feel like it doesn't really help me and like I might need another explanation I need to see what it looks like or like in a spelling bee right could you use that word in a sentence and the answer for me would be no I can't I'll need to use it in an entire paragraph because I can't fit anything into just one sentence it's just the amount of words that I say so there you go uh, so my paragraph would be Sarah is a disciple uh, she follows his teachings and as such discipleship is a lifelong pursuit of following Jesus and learning what he taught and following those teachings and becoming more like him 
that still doesn't really help me. It, it doesn't really uh, give me any clear picture of what that looks like. It feels very abstract. I don't know what it entails. And maybe it's because I need a picture because I'm a very visual person. My mother and I would say we're visual people, right? So when we go to rearrange something, we decide let's rearrange the living room. We can't just stand there and picture what it will look like if we move all of the furniture. We need to actually move all of the furniture and then look at it and say, yeah, no, it looked better the way we had it and move it all back, right? But we are visual people, so I need a visual to be able to understand something. And that's what leads me back then to Matthew chapter 19. So here's what's happening in that passage. The Pharisees have come to Jesus to test him by asking a really controversial question about divorce. But Jesus, as per usual, recognizes what they're up to. He's not fallen for their trap. He's not taken the bait for an argument. And rather than answer their question the way that they are hoping for, the way they're anticipating or even expecting him to do so, he answers in a completely different way, goes an entirely different direction. And he gives a really great sermon on marriage in the process, which we'll come back to next week. So spoiler alert, the next two weeks... Uh, uh, in this sermon series are actually about why marriage is a really big deal. But what you need to know today is that in, these, in this chapter, in verses 3 through 9, Jesus has just affirmed the value and importance of marriage, and he has just affirmed what the scriptures have said about marriage throughout the Old Testament. But then he turns and makes an incredibly compelling case for the state of singleness. So the disciples are super confused by what Jesus has just said, which, to be honest, is basically just their normal state. Uh, they live in a state of confusion by what Jesus has just said to them. So they ask Jesus a question by way of a statement. Well, if this is the situation, what you've just said about marriage, well then, if that's the deal between a husband and wife, it must be better not to marry. Now, here's the thing. We know for sure that Peter is married because we've been introduced to his mother-in-law a few chapters earlier when Jesus healed her from a fever. And it would make sense if most, if not all, of these 12 disciples, um, the guys that are standing there that Jesus is talking to, are in fact married. So it's a little late for them to be asking this question uh, of Jesus, right? Like, should we not have have gotten married? Wait, what is, what is Jesus saying, you know? And I can sort of picture Jesus just standing there kind of shaking his head like, guys, guys, no. Okay, you know, bring it in, bring it in, guys. We're going to start from the beginning. We're going to start from the, let's start over, right? So, okay, listen up. Here's what I'm trying to say to you, you know? That's kind of what happens. And so then Jesus goes on to say something super crazy. When he uses their question to now elevate the role of singleness as a real choice, that real pay people could make and would make. And then he goes on to use the figure of the eunuch to paint a picture uh, of radical obedience and discipleship. So if you remember from last week's message, eunuchs were considered less than. They were excluded from worshiping in the assemblies of God, assembly of God's people. There we go, not the assemblies of God. Boy, man, there we go. Also, I'll just tell you, sometimes it feels, okay, no, so rather than that, excluded from worshiping in the assembly of God's people, and they were excluded from making sacrifices to the Lord. But Jesus isn't using the eunuch here as an example of exclusion. Jesus is announcing now a new role for them within his own kingdom. 
And in doing this, Jesus fulfills the day that the prophet Isaiah had written about hundreds of years before in Isaiah chapter 56, which is what we talked about last week. When the eunuch would be welcomed into the family of God and given honor previously reserved for those only who had a family. So Jesus replies now to this statement question that the disciples have offered. And he replies, not everyone can accept this word, the word I'm about to give them, but only those to whom it has been given. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. And others were made that way by men, and others have renounced marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. And the one who can accept this should accept it. So Jesus has listed three types of eunuchs. The first two are categories of eunuchs the disciples knew about, plus they were the types that the scripture mentions. We looked at some of these passages last week. There were other popular writings at that time that Jesus uh, was talking uh, uh, that, that included these types of eunuchs as well. So Jesus lists those two categories first, just for clarity. Because had Jesus just said, listen, some people will become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom, the disciples would have had in mind those eunuchs who were born that way or made that way for a specific reason. And the disciples might have easily missed the point, because again, they had a habit of doing so. They would have missed the point that those who would renounce marriage and become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom would do so completely voluntarily, not because they had to, not because someone forced them to, not because there wasn't any other choice for them, but out of rational radical obedience. So Jesus is building up to something completely revolutionary. It is a revolutionary idea that he's about to present, one that was going to shock the disciples, maybe even offend them just a little bit. It would definitely be followed by that mind-blown emoji, you know, that one, you know, where the brain is kind of like exploding, when the disciples text their friends later on that day. They were going to actually text them and say, you are not going to believe the crazy thing that Jesus said today. I mean, he has said some crazy things, but I mean, this is insane, what he said today. He actually implied today that people would choose of their own free will and volition. People would choose to remain single for the sake of the kingdom. Mind blown. And if Jesus intended to call his 12 disciples to deeper obedience by using the most extreme example available to him, I think he succeeded. I think he might still be succeeding. This third type of eunuch, as described by Jesus, is, what an, is an example of what a disciple who is prepared to lose herself or himself for the cause of Christ will look like. Now, remember when we did a series on Revelation, we talked about how some things are literal and some things are figurative? Well, it's the same thing here. So Jesus is calling literal men and women who can accept this call to renounce marriage because of the kingdom of heaven. Paul talks about these same people, right? Uh, but he is also, Jesus is also figuratively using the image of the eunuch to exemplify what radical obedience to Christ will look like. And that's ultimately what we're talking about this morning. But there are some myself included, who have been called to renounce marriage. But remember, in the part of the passage that we're coming back to next week, Jesus has just affirmed marriage while talking to a bunch of married guys. And he affirmed singleness, which was good because he himself was single. In other words, not everyone was accept to accept this word that he was giving as a call to singleness. But some were. And not everyone was supposed to be married, but some were. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself because this is all for next week when we talk about marriage as something God has set up from the very beginning. But this morning, I want us to consider this figurative figure. I want us to consider what it looks like then 
for Jesus' married disciples listening that day in Matthew 19 and for his disciples today sitting in this house and watching online today. I want us to consider what it was that he was trying to teach them about the kingdom because there was something from this third type of eunuch that all of us were to learn about discipleship. So married or single, there is something for us to learn about discipleship from the figure of the eunuch. So let me give you three lessons that he teaches us, and then we'll circle back to what discipleship looks like. Lesson number one is about loyalty to the king and his kingdom. In the ancient world, kings lived in constant fear of being dethroned. In Israel, if you remember, God promised David he would forever have a son to sit on the throne, and then the throne gets taken away from his son, but then for the sake of David, it was actually from his grandson. And So anyhow, he leaves him with a tribe, though. He leaves him with Judah and, and Benjamin. And so it's just his son, though, that succeeds him, right? It's a family dynasty, and that continues then all the way down, uh, down the line. But the part that was, was taken away then, the rest of Israel, well, they're ruled by tons of other people. There was always somebody then that was about to lead a coup or that Jesus said, listen, he's not following me, so we're about to put somebody else in power. So they lived just in this constant fear that they were going to be overthrown by somebody. It made these kings incredibly paranoid uh, and super particular about who it was that could serve them in their court because always somebody in their, in their court, in their army, in their high-ranking deal, some other nation was going to come in and just overtake them. It's what happened all the time, that they would overthrow the reigning king and establish their own di dynasty. So again, the result being this left us a lot of really paranoid kings throughout history. But the eunuch's inability to create a family of his own made him an excellent candidate for service in royal households. So the biblical examples we have of eunuchs are those serving in foreign courts. They're in places of prestige and importance. The court of King Xerxes in the book of Esther, multiple eunuchs that serve in that court. Uh, if you remember the Ethiopian eunuch from last week's story, he worked in a court. He worked for Queen Candace of Ethiopia, high-ranking position. It's noteworthy that many uh, scholars believe that Nehemiah was a eunuch because history says the Persian kings typically had eunuchs in their service. And at the very start of that book, uh, the book of Nehemiah, we learned that he was a cupbearer for the king. And the person bringing food to the king, well, he had to be trusted because this was a prime way of getting rid of the king. You just poison their food, you know, because sometimes Earl has to die. So you just, whatever. Eunuchs were thought to be more loyal to the king for the sole reason that they had no heir by which to establish their own future dynasty, and therefore they held very little threat. Additionally, the eunuchs who served kings fully relied on them for provision for themselves. There wasn't anybody else to care for them. Remember, sons were a person's retirement plan, and so kings relied on eunuchs to care for them, and eunuchs relied on the king to provide for them. And in this way, the eunuch's future was tied to the continued reign of the king and his heirs who would succeed him. And the eunuch, he would swear complete allegiance to the king. I'm all in. I'm not in this for myself. I'm not here to seek a position or a title or a reputation. I'm just here to serve the king and build his kingdom. And in return, the king promised to provide and to meet the needs that the eunuch had for protection, for a place to live, a seat at the table, and a future. And the lesson for all of us is that following Jesus looks like total and complete allegiance and loyalty to the king 
to King Jesus in order to further his kingdom alone. Well, lesson number two then is that there's a personal cost involved in serving the king. Now remember who Jesus is talking to in Matthew 19, it's his disciples. And the calling of Peter and Andrew and James and John in Matthew chapter 4 had been a call to abandon physical comfort and security to follow Jesus. These four guys are professional fishermen at the time when Jesus called them. They were most likely making a very good living. They were providing well for their family. They, um, they were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And yet they left their boats immediately, denying their own career goals, their own financial safety, the future provision that they had for their families, all for the sake of the king and his kingdom. And in Matthew 19, verse 27, Peter will remind Jesus of this. Hey, you know, we left everything to follow you. Because here's the thing, discipleship is not without cost. We sometimes get this confused with salvation. Salvation from Jesus is a free gift available to anyone and everyone. But discipleship, well, that will cost you everything. However, Jesus had already told his disciples what the cost to follow him would be back in chapter 16 when he told them, if anyone wants to come after me, he'll have to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And what we each deny of ourselves is different for each of us. I mentioned in a sermon earlier this year that I don't actually like pop. I don't like anything that's carbonated. I just don't. It's not my thing. Never have, never in my life have I drunk a glass of pop. I just don't like it. So if I were to say, hey, let's all go on a fast, right? So I know that our board currently are fasting, and I hope you all are continuing to pray and to seek the Lord about the, the future of Carbondale. But if I were to say, you know what? I'm going to give up pop this month to fast for the Lord, right? Um, that's not a thing. That's not a sacrifice, right? I'm doing that anyhow because I don't like it. I'm not denying myself anything, right? Because that's not a, not a problem for me. But if I said, so for the next 30 days, I'm going to give up a morning cup of coffee, well, now it's costing me something, you know, right? So it might be a different ask. It might be that discipleship costs us something different. But the point is that there is a sacrifice involved. There is a cost involved in serving the Lord. So these four, Peter, James, Andrew, John, Boy, I always start somehow doing that and end up getting the wrong four people. Peter, Andrew, James, John, there we go. Those four in particular, what they gave up had to do with their livelihood. But let's look at some other costs. Because the demands of discipleship are on full display in Matthew chapter 19. Next week, we'll talk about the demands of Christian marriage when we go back to the beginning of the chapter. But Jesus demands faithfulness in marriage for those who follow after him. He demands total and complete obedience in every area of our lives, including sexual activity, for the sake of the kingdom. Later, in verse 21 of this chapter, though, there's a rich young man who comes to Jesus weighing the cost of following him. What will it really require to follow Jesus? What will it really cost are the questions that he comes to Jesus with. Because he's been following all the rules. It was no problem for him to do so because he is a good guy. Right? So Jesus kind of asked him about the, the laws that he's been following. He's like, well, I mean, I'm already not murdering anyone, right? So I'm basically the best disciple ever, you know? Like, well, that, how hard is that to go through your whole life without murdering anyone, right? Like, he's like, I'm not stealing. Yeah, because you're rich. You don't have to, right? Like, you already have everything. You could buy it. So he's not stealing. He's not lying. He's honoring his parents. Most of that's not too hard for this guy. It's not a big deal. He's already doing it. 
So he comes asking, what will I really have to deny in order to truly follow? And Jesus says, well, it'll cost you the selling of your earthly material possessions in exchange for treasures in heaven. And the rich young man walks away because he has earthly material possessions, right? None of this other stuff was particularly hard. He had, maybe he had great parents. It wasn't that, it was super easy to honor them. I don't know, but I just know that whenever it actually was going to cost him something that he truly had, that he really wanted, when he was going to de- need to deny himself in order to truly follow Jesus, and this was the ask, this was what was required of him, will you sell everything in order to follow me? Will you a- actually give up the thing that you're holding on to the most, the thing that you've worked really hard to get, the thing that you think is the most important thing oh no 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 not willing to do that because that's going to hurt a little right if I have to deny myself something I really want if it's going to cost me that I'm not willing to pay the price and this is not a good shouting message and there's only half of you all here today so I know it's gone super quiet in here plus I've preached on eunuchs two weeks in a row so I can get that that is odd you know but I'm just telling you, this is what the scripture says. So the man walks away. He's not willing to pay the price. And that's when Peter comes to Jesus to ask, wait, we have left everything. We have actually done what you just told him to do. And what will there be for us? And Jesus says, well, for some it will, what it will cost you to follow me completely is saying no to marriage and children But everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake, meaning material possessions, houses and fields, right? That's their livelihood. That's their future. That's retirement. Anyone who has left that will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. Francis Maloney said the whole of the New Testament teaches that the radical demands of Christian discipleship must be met within the mysterious context of a disciple who is prepared to lose himself in his openness to the gifts which God alone can give. The king will provide for you. A life of service to the king is not devoid of pleasure and good things, but it'll cost you before you receive those good gifts in return. And there's a side lesson to the cost of serving the king. This is a lesson 2B, if you will, right? So we're not on to lesson 3 yet. We're still on lesson 2, but this is kind of a side, no- side one because it only applies to a few, not all. But it's an important lesson for all of us to be aware of that some of us will be asked to remain single. Michael Green said, For the sake of pleasing the king, there are those who have been willing to offer him this prized area of their sexuality and have been willing to stay single as their master did. And for some, the cost to serve the king is the very thing that we're all taught is a normal rite of passage, to grow up, get married, start a family. And there are some who are asked to deny themselves for a season and remain single and others who will count the cost for a lifetime. And just as in every other cost that has been named, only you know what Jesus is asking of you. So lesson 2B is over. Back Back to the lesson for all of us. This third type of eunuch that Jesus uses, he's an example of what a disciple who is prepared to lose herself or himself for the cause of Christ will look like. That it may cost something. And to be clear, to be clear, make sure that you're listening to this part. Make sure that you haven't tuned out everything and now then you're going to misunderstand what I'm about to say. To be clear, singleness is not greater than marriage. And marriage is not greater than singleness. 
point being made in Matthew 19 is about total surrender. It's about the cost of obedience, and that makes both marriage and singleness a matter of discipleship. It means that our careers, our retirement plans, our possessions, they're all matters of discipleship. It means our future plans, our callings, our money, our possessions, matters of discipleship. It means that the way that we live every area of our lives, our work life, our sex life, our thought life, our church life, all matters of discipleship. And the question is, are we prepared to lose ourselves for the cause of Christ and being a servant of the King? Because the eunuch here, he serves as a call for all followers of Christ to renounce anything, anything that stands in contrast to the call to deny themselves and to take up a cross. To be eunuch priest for the sake of the kingdom is to have a will for total dedication and the renunciation of all lesser ideals, objectives, and obligations. It is all about service to Jesus, to the king and his kingdom. So once again, there is a cost to discipleship, but the rewards for obedience to Christ far outweigh the initial price. And lesson number three then, complete and continued obedience to the king is required. Ultimately, that's the lesson that the eunuch teaches us, is a lesson about obedience. And I mentioned earlier that Nehemiah is thought to be a eunuch because of the role that he had and served in a foreign king's court. There's no mention of a wife or children for Nehemiah, just his father's name and a brother. And when we consider his story, we see a few key points about obedience. Nehemiah was serving King Artaxerxes when he began to feel a call to follow the Lord in a new and deeper way. So Nehemiah heard about a need way back in Jerusalem, a city hundreds of miles away, close to like 800 miles, and that was if you went through a desert. So that seemed like a poor decision, so it would have taken him even longer than an 800-mile journey even to get back. So what we're saying is, a long ways away from where he is, he hears about a need that is happening there. And as something just begins to stir in his heart as he hears about the neglect and the ruins that are around Jerusalem. So he begins to pray, and his prayer begins, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, the one who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and the ones who obey his commands. From the very beginning, Nehemiah recognized it was about obedience, that God honored those who obeyed him. So God began to move in his heart and began to give him a plan for what could be done, but it wouldn't be without great personal cost. You see, Nehemiah had a very certain future in his role as the cupbearer. His needs were provided for if he stayed in the court and didn't really make any waves. In fact, King Artaxerxes, he finally asked Nehemiah what was wrong because Nehemiah had never really been upset or sad in his court before and something seemed a little bit off and he asked Nehemiah, what's going on with you? And Nehemiah says, well, the land of my ancestors, my father's, it's lying in ruins and blah, blah, blah. And, and so finally, uh, King Artaxerxes says, Nehemiah, what are you getting at? What are you getting at? And we're told then that Nehemiah offers a quick, silent prayer for help. Because what he's about to ask could have been seen as a, as an, basically as a, as a symbol of insurrection. He's serving a king, asking if he can go build someone else's kingdom. Allegiance and loyalty to the king and his kingdom, that was lesson number one. Everybody knows that that's the lesson. Everybody knows then that this is going to cost him something, but he wasn't necessarily prepared to lose his life for asking if he could go back and build someone else's kingdom. 
a kingdom, mind you, that Artaxerxes' uh, government had, had overthrown the government that had overthrown them to begin with, right? So this whole thing feels a little bit convoluted, and so he asked for God to help him, to give him the boldness to make this request. Because ultimately, Nehemiah was serving King Artaxerxes, but he was serving God, the Almighty King. And so he asks him, and amazingly, King Artaxerxes was willing to let Nehemiah return to Jerusalem to do what God had put in his heart to do. When Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, though, it's not all smooth sailing. There's persecution by others who didn't understand God's call. And there was physical danger as they built the walls again around Jerusalem and they began to restore the gates. And there were millions of distractions which tried to pull Nehemiah's attention away from the call of God and the opportunity to build up this king and this kingdom. But Nehemiah was determined to obey and to serve the true king of all kings because he knew what God had put in his heart to do. And the opposition to the building project, it began to increase, and the enemies just kept coming around and began to multiply, and they start hollering, Nehemiah, come on down from that wall. We'd just like to talk to you. We just want to talk. We're just here to talk. That's all we're doing. <laughs> we just want to talk to you about these plans that you have. We just want to talk to you about what's going on. And I love Nehemiah's response. He finally sends a messenger, and he says, yeah, guys, I'm carrying on a great project up here, so I really can't be bothered to come down and meet with you because you're just a big, fat distraction. I don't think he said fat. That's not accurate. That's not in the scripture. But he said, you guys are just trying to distract me. I'm not coming down for this, right? I'm not going to do this. Why should the work stop while I leave it and go down to you to just argue? So they kept after him to come off down the wall and engage with him. And finally, Nehemiah just prays to the Lord. Now strengthen my hands. Strengthen my hands and so that I can remain focused on the task at hand. Because there was a work to be done and a command from God to be obeyed and nothing was going to stop him because he had pledged complete allegiance to the Lord and his loyalty was to the king of kings and to building his kingdom alone. So the book of Nehemiah demonstrates that commitment is costly. It requires our time, our resources, our thought life, and even our very soul. The depths of these requirements will increase with every obstacle that we encounter. And this cupbearer willingly paid the cost necessary to ensure that his commitment stood strong. Nehemiah's commitment to the, Lord, to the Lord's work rested upon the recognition of the Lord's calling and enablement, as well as his dependence on him. It costs something to serve the Lord with radical obedience. But obedience is what is ultimately required of every follower of King Jesus. And in the end, Nehemiah's obedience resulted in the walls being rebuilt, in the book of the law being read, a revival of repentance sweeping across the city, a return to purity, and a restored city, because Nehemiah completed the assignment the Lord had put in his heart to do. And this is the picture. This is what discipleship looks like. Discipleship looks like an individual who will give everything they have, and all that they are, no matter the cost, in obedient service to King Jesus. And this morning, I'm letting you know that there's work for you to do, and the King has need of your service. And what is it that he's asking you to surrender to him today? Jesus told his disciples that day in Matthew 19, not everybody will be able to accept this word, but the one who can accept it should. And these are the lessons these single individuals bear witness to to us today. Not everyone will live for Jesus. The rich young ruler proves that not everyone is willing to lay down everything in complete surrender to do so. 
Each of those disciples showed us that we will all be asked to give up something for the sake of following Jesus. Nehemiah shows us there are personal costs attached and not everyone will understand your assignment or your call. The eunuch who renounced everything for the kingdom of heaven, well, Jesus intends for us to learn from him what discipleship and allegiance to the king truly looks like. But there's one other witness in this story, and it's Jesus himself. Jesus knew what he was talking about because he had pledged allegiance to his father and to the building of his father's kingdom. He was a member of the Godhead, yet equality with God was not his consideration. Rather, he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant. He became a human so he could serve the king. And he humbled himself. He counted the cost. And he became obedient in all things, including death on the cross. But it was not without reward. Jesus' obedience, his death, his willingness to serve God meant that God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. And God provided all of this for his son who remained obedient. And here's what I'm telling you this morning. There is a cost, but the return is that the king will provide for us all that we need. Salvation, forgiveness, provision, family, Imagine that. That comes up in a couple of weeks. God sets us into new families sometimes. He sets us into family. He provides that need. That need for people who have just felt isolated and alone like we talked about last week. God provides for that need. The king provides. He provides legacy. You name it, and the king provides it. Because when we serve the king, the king takes care of us in return. And that's the greatest lesson we learn from these single witnesses. And so we stand this morning and I'm just asking you to begin to search your own heart. What is God asking you today? What is it that is standing between you and complete surrender to the Lord? And I'm urging you this morning, don't walk away like the rich young ruler because the king is looking for obedient surrender today. And the worship team is going to begin to sing this song that I spent my whole life singing at the close of a service, it feels like. And maybe that's why it's so important to me then that we just continue to surrender all. Daily, we give it all to Jesus. And so what is it that the King is asking for you to obediently surrender today? I don't know what it will cost you, but I believe that there are people in this room right now who need to make their way to the front, to the altar, to simply lay down that remaining thing that you've been holding on to. Maybe it's personal comfort, maybe it's financial freedom, maybe it's this idea that I can't go into service. I know the Lord had a call on my life, but it's been too many years now, or I don't know what it is that God's asking me, but I just don't think that I'm willing to lay it all down to Him. Maybe it's, again, a plan that you had for your family or your kid or your job. But what I know is that discipleship looks like daily surrender to Jesus. It looks like complete surrender to the King. Discipleship looks like complete obedience to whatever Jesus is speaking to you. And so can I encourage you to come to the altar this morning and surrender all that you have and all that you are to Him. Because these altars should
should be full this morning of disciples surrendering again today all that they have for Jesus to use as he sees fit. The king has a job for you. Will you surrender to him this morning? Let's give him all that we have. 